Jim, my friend, welcome to the show. The tables have turned. You're usually the host when we speak on a podcast, but now it's my turn. I'm the captain now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Liberty, this is a delightful break for me. So thank you for stepping in. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now that I'm with OSV, I want the listener to understand better who's behind it. And what better way to do that than to go straight to the source? I'm not going to be a secondhand source here. I'm going to ask you all about it. But first, because I think of OSV as an extension of your mind, I want people to understand your mind a little bit better and where you come from. I think of you also as a lover of the arts and of philosophy and of science and a student of human progress and of funny gifts and all of that. I want to dig into all that kind of stuff. So first, you've told me a lot in one-on-one -on -one conversations. I've heard a lot in podcasts. I have all these fragments about how you grew up, where you came from, some of your early business ventures, all that stuff. But I'd love to kind of put it all a little bit together and start from the beginning. And so I'm curious about basic stuff. Where did you grow up? What were your formative years? I want to learn more about that. Sure. Well, thanks. I'm reminded a little bit of Mark Twain when somebody was giving him a really elaborate and very kind introduction. When he got up to talk, he said, well, he went on so much about me, I could hardly wait to get up and hear myself talk. <laughs> <laughs> so first off, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. So the origin story, where did I grow up? I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, which as a Canadian, as you know, we manage money for the Royal Bank. One time I was giving a speech up there and a fellow came up afterwards and he goes, how long have you been an expat? And I said, <laughs> I'm uh, an American. <laughs> and he was really taken aback. And he said to me, where did you grow up? And I said, in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul. And he got very calm and he goes, oh, Minnesota. That's a really nice Canadian province. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> you told me you travel so much across Canada. You've seen a lot more of my own country than I have. I think we can give you an honorary Canadian citizenship at this point. I would love that. That's a funny story. I'll jump back to the beginning and the origin story. But so I was the principal fund manager for the O'Shaughnessy funds, which are offered by the Royal Bank. And it transpired that in Canada, you had to have a CFA to be a portfolio manager. I don't have a CFA. <laughs> So I joke that what works on Wall Street was my fucking CFA. <laughs> anyway, what they did was had the Toronto Stock Exchange issue a proclamation, the very fancy kind written in calligraphy and the whole actually quite beautiful. Anyway, it goes on. Whereas James Patrick O'Shaughnessy is the manager of the Royal Bank of Canada's O'Shaughnessy funds. And whereas I'm not going to do it all, but it referred to what works on Wall Street. And then it said at the bottom, we deem James P. O'Shaughnessy to have a CFA. Oh, wow. The imprimatur. <laughs> <laughs> so back to where I grew up. I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. Minnesota is a great place and had really an amazingly happy childhood. Came from a family of six. I was the martini baby. Thank God for martinis, because there's a huge gap between me and my next sibling, about seven years. So I had the odd experience of 
being raised almost like an only child because all of my sisters were away at college. But then during the holidays, being the runt of the litter (laughs) when they would all come back and order me around. And I also come from a family where my grandfather, I.A. O'Shaughnessy, had been really spectacularly successful as a oil wildcatter. At one point, I found a clipping from an old Fortune, I think, Fortune magazine in my step-grandmother's effects after she had died. And I think it was from the 1930s. I could be wrong. But anyway, it was along the lines of, if you think Joseph Kennedy is the richest Irish Catholic in America, there's a very quiet fellow in St. Paul, Minnesota, who could buy and sell him 10 times over. (laughs) And that was my grandfather. Wow. But one of the things that my grandfather did that always really inspired me was during his own lifetime, he gave away about 95% of his fortune. Wow. And he used to always quote the line from Hello, Dolly, when he would come over for dinner. Money is a lot like manure. If you pile it all up in one place, it stinks to high heaven. But if you spread it around, it's an excellent fertilizer. Wow was way ahead of his time on the giving pledge and all of that. He really was, and responsible for many of the buildings at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, and many, many other gifts to Notre Dame, etc. But I think the thing that I really took away was where much is given, much is required. And he just was an amazing human being. And I was lucky that I was the runt of the litter because he was the only grandparent I knew. Coming at the tail end, I'm the youngest member of the third generation of my family. So, I mean, I have cousins who are in their late 80s. And so after my paternal grandmother died, my grandfather came to our house twice a week for dinner and taught me just so many incredible things. One that I've shared with you is this idea of premeditation, where it's basically a Monte Carlo simulation, but you do it on paper about something you think you want. And I emphasize think you want. Yeah, you may find out otherwise. Indeed. Basically, it's pretty simple. You just write, I want X. And then you go down all of the ways that it might change your life if you get X to the positive. But then you also have to do what happens negatively, if I get what I state I want. And then you go down another path that is, I don't get X, same discipline. What are the positive things out of me not getting X? What are the negative things of me not getting X? It's just a great way to solidify your own thoughts. I'm a big believer that you've got to get your thoughts out of your head onto paper. One of our potential colleagues wrote on our Slack that He calls it a base human algorithm where you take pen in hand because it's been evolving in we humans for such a long, well, since the beginning of writing. And I'd always speculate it. You know that I have 40 plus years of journals that we're going to try to convert to machine readable format so that the AI can explain me to me. (laughs) My next podcast interview will be with that AI, actually. Oh, awesome. (laughs) That'd be fun. That'd be fun. Text to voice. He's going to be (laughs) massively smarter than me. (laughs) But so my beginnings were always, I was just incredibly lucky and feel incredible gratitude 
for everything where I started. I definitely started life on third base. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. Even though my grandfather ended up giving away most of his money, there was still a thriving family company that an uncle really wanted me to join. Just so many lessons growing up in a family like that that have been really portable to what I'm doing now. That's a great segue. Something Kevin Kelly told me, and I've been thinking about it since, and I'm trying to incorporate more of that in my family. He talks about try to figure out what makes your family different than others and make it very clear to your kids, to the others, so that it can be kind of a shared thing, right? And I'm curious if you can think of some of that for your own family. Growing up, was there something that you're like, we're different in this way, or these values are very strong for us, or any of those kind of guiding lights from the start that you can think of? Everyone is always kind of banging on about what's my purpose in life. And I think I was lucky to learn that early, which is my purpose is to be useful and marry that to what I think is probably partially genetically enhanced curiosity. And curiosity has basically ruled my life. I just was curious about everything. When I was a kid, I went to Catholic grade school. And even though it was post-Vatican II, Catholics will understand what that means. They left Latin. I always joke that that is a broadly applicable insight that the priesthood always said the mass in Latin because they didn't want the laity to know what they were up to. <laughs> Simpler that way. <laughs> they don't have to know. Better that you don't know. Well, we see it today. We'll get to that. So there was this thing, I'm 62, and so I was in grammar school in the late 1960s. And they had this innovation in education, which was called SRA, And it was essentially a box of single cards where you would read the story and then you were required to answer questions about it. So I loved that. And I think I was in second or third grade and I went through the whole box and the box went all the way to the eighth grade. Oh, wow. So here's the interesting part, though. And I think this might also explain my natural and somewhat intense opposition to most authority figures, instead of saying, wow, that's fantastic, Jim, you got all the way through it. We're going to send you to the library and you can do more stuff over there. No, I was punished. I was literally punished for doing that. And they made me sit. This isn't video, but you can see it. They made me sit at my desk while the other kids were working on it with my hands formed in a Christmas tree. And so I went home and I complained bitterly to my dad and he goes, come here. And I went, okay. And I followed him into our formal living room where there was a set, which I still have, by the way, of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Ah, uh, the internet before the internet. Yeah. He pulled out the first volume and he goes, read this. And so I did. <laughs> I just was endlessly fascinated by why things worked the way they worked systems architecture, all of that kind of stuff. Why? Why? My mother used to say to me, honestly, Jim, you wore me out with whys. <laughs> And so one of her strategies, which actually I think ended up being very helpful for me, when she tired of me asking why, 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 she would turn the question around on me. And she would say, well, I don't know, Jim, why do you think it works that way? That's good. That's what I'm trying to do with my kids now. 
I have the same, not problem, I have the same great thing with my kids is they always want to know everything. But at some point, giving them answers is not teaching them how to think, how to find answers. So I turn it around on them and it's, why do you think? And then they come up with all kinds of stuff and then let's test those out. Let's look those up. And then why didn't that work? Sometimes you learn more by getting a wrong answer that's very interesting than a boring right answer. Boy, you're hitting all my hotspots there. When we were having our first child, Patrick, my wife and I got married very young. We were 22. And I said, since we're batshit crazy and getting married this year, <laughs> why don't we at least have kids young? So we were 24 when Patrick was born. And before he was born, we had a series of pretty intense conversations about what kind of parents did we want to be? And we alighted on the one thing that we really agreed on was our objective was to raise great adults. And when you have that as your objective, it precludes so many things that come natural to young parents. You can't say, because I'm the dad and you're the son or daughter. You can't say, my house, my rules. You can't say any of those kind of things that would lead them to believe that you're right and they're wrong. And so when my kids would come to me pre-Google, and if you were here, you'd see we have a huge library. And my kids would be working on a school project and they'd come to me and say, dad, what's the answer to this? And of course I knew the answer most of the time, but I never gave it to them. I pointed at the bookcase and I said, look it up in there. They weren't happy with that. But later, now as they're all adults, it's like one of the commonalities that they say that they were delighted that we did. And the other thing we did was we took them seriously. Patrick wanted to quit karate. He was being trained in karate when he was really young. He was seven or eight. He came to me one day. He'd had a bad day at his karate session. And he goes, Dad, I don't want to be in karate anymore. And I said, okay, why? And he goes, because I don't want to. And I said, mm, that's not going to work. Go think through why you don't want to be in karate anymore and then come and tell me. And he did just that. He went away and he came back and he had a very compelling list <laughs> of why he didn't want to be in karate. And I went, great, done. We tried to understand that the way to raise a successful adult is to make them curious, is to make them understand that they have agency, is to make them understand that just because I'm your father or Missy, their mother, doesn't mean they can't question or challenge us. In fact, we encourage that. And so, knock wood, all of my kids <laughs> turned out pretty well. <laughs> but the other thing is, I didn't try to ever live vicariously through my children. They all have very different interests and professions and vocations and avocations, but those are their achievements. Those aren't my achievements. We all know Patrick as he's the king of podcasting, at least in the business section. My daughter, Kate, is a very successful middle grade novelist. And my youngest daughter, Lael, is an aspiring and incredibly funny comedian. Those are their achievements. And the more you are able to understand that it's bad, it's bad to try to get your kids to be mini versions of you, the better your outcome, I think. Anyone trying to do that, and it's very common, should think about how they would feel if their parents was doing that. And they, maybe they were, maybe that's the problem, right? Maybe that's the only model that they knew, but agency and 
it's all about the journey. Destinations are short-lived and they usually are not what we think they will be anyway. It's much more important to find the right journeys. And the idea that we can do that for other people, our kids, when it's so hard to do it, even for ourselves, I think it's kind of diluted. One thing I want to ask you about, because that's something we have in common and we often talk about, is your love for all forms of arts, from music to visual arts. I know you collect all kinds of great, great art, films, TV. We can talk about Johann Sebastian Bach one day, and then you talk about how you love EDM. The variety and the curiosity about all kinds of stuff, it's how I try to live. First of all, I think too many people, not look down, but they underrate the value of art in life. It's one of the things that make life worth living. Spending time with a good novel or a good TV show or whatever can be as important in my life as any serious work that I'm going to do, right? Creating value somewhere else, fine, but I don't know. Too many people are too focused on all this other stuff and forget that there's all kinds of things that they can live through art that they won't live elsewhere. I'm curious how you think about it, but I'm also curious, were you always like that? Did you grow into it? Was your family very into the arts and did they pass that down to you or did you find that on your own? First off, I have to give you a compliment. I don't watch TV unless my wife is here. She enjoys, after a long day of street photography, just kind of chilling. And so we'll normally do a show that we'll both enjoy. And you, my friend, that's the real reason I hired you. It was because you're like <laughs> the best curator and have the best taste of anyone I've ever met. You offered us a show called The Offer about the making of The Godfather. And I got to tell you, Michael, you were a huge hit <laughs> with me and my wife. My wife is like, who recommended this again? Who was it? <laughs> and she goes, of course you have him working for you now, with you. Now I'm feeling pressure. Now the next one I recommend better be good because otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> it will be. I have great faith. It's always hard to kind of disambiguate because it seems, was it Wittgenstein? I can't remember who's quoted it is, but... Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. And so retrospectively, we fill in, we give it a narrative that makes sense. Of course, I was always interested in art. Honestly, another great part of having all 40 plus years of journals is <laughs> learning that our memories are incredibly unreliable narrators. We think AI hallucinates. <laughs> What about us? Oh, man, we are confabulating our asses off most of the time. And by the way, there's a reason for that. Deep in our human OS is a really strong need for the illusion of control. So I think one of the things that our minds do is they literally overwrite and update our memories to make them consistent with what we think now. And I've had that proven to me so many times by going back through my own journals that I really think it happens. And I think, for example, eyewitnesses to crime or accidents or whatever are incredibly unreliable. There's a great Netflix documentary series about that. I think it's called The Innocence Files. And one of the episodes, it's all about eyewitnesses. And it's like, after you see that, you just can't trust what anyone says anymore. They could say the exact inverse of what actually happened, and they're sure of it. They will swear up and down. They will swear on their kids' lives, and it's untrue. There's a good book by Malcolm Gladwell called Talking to Strangers, and I have a thread up about it. It's a long one. But essentially, in Gladwell's book, this is what he looks at. First off, we've evolved to be both competitive and cooperative, both. And one of the things that 
makes us want to be cooperative, talking to strangers, is that we are incredibly, ridiculously weak as individual humans. In the old hunter-gatherer days, the worst thing that could happen to you was exile from the tribe because it meant death. And because the world, for people who don't know history, the world was an incredibly inhospitable place to we humans. Unlike a horse that's born and is running three hours later, we are helpless for the first, well, some would say 25 years. (laughs) (laughs) But the point is that that's why we evolved to cooperate. And through that cooperation, we became the apex predator on the planet. Anyway, retrospectively, back to art, this is not a memory of mine. This is a story that my father told me so many times that I believe it's true. Not sure, because I wasn't able to document it. But I grew up in a prairie style, kind of Frank Lloyd Wright house. And, you know, the prairie style, which was very popular in the 40s and 50s, they're very long, kind of sleek, low to the ground, very popular in the Midwest. This was a big one. And so... There was a very long hallway that ended in our family room on one end and in our formal living room on the other. And my father was an early adopter of walking and jogging. And he determined that he needed to have four half-hour walks a day. And he did that all of his adult life. During the Minnesota winters, I used to joke that if the America were the old USSR, Minnesota would be Siberia. That's (laughs) where all of the political prisoners would be sent. So during the winter, he used to walk the hall in our house. And we had speakers at both ends in the living room and the family room. And he would put music on, normally Bach. And he told me one time as he was beginning his walk, he was going back and forth. And I was playing with Tinker Toys or Lincoln Logs or something in the family room. And he was walking back and forth, would say, hi, Jim, you know, and then go again. And then he said, he came back in and he found me sitting on the couch with my eyes closed. And he looked at me and said, Jim, what are you doing? And I said to him, Dad, what is this beautiful music? And it was Bach. And so from a very young age, I loved classical music. Bach in particular, and my later learning is, well, you know, if you read Gödel Escher Bach, there's a reason why it's Gödel Escher Bach and not Gödel Escher Stravinsky. (laughs) Yeah. Because Bach's music is so incredibly mathematical. And I kind of believe the grand chain of being always had music as the celestial music or the celestial language of the universe. Oh, that's beautiful. And if you break it down, music is math. So that kind of spurred my interest there. In terms of visual arts, my parents weren't collectors of any kind. That was kind of a joint decision of my wife and mine. My wife, as you know, is becoming very famous street photographer. Yeah, I have her books. I know you do. And she's just been included in a compendium of many street photographers. So she was always very visual and she was getting her master's in art history at the University of Minnesota, which Patrick interrupted. (laughs) (laughs) She became obsessed with the idea of patronage. And 
we used to talk about it at great length. And I was really taken by the idea of patronage. You look at Florence during the Renaissance, that was the Medici. The Medici and the popes, many of whom were Medici. (laughs) If you know your real history, you know that Pope Innocent was a not so innocent. We started just kind of going to galleries and museums and whatnot, and just really fell in love with the visual arts, all of them, not just photography, mostly oil painting for the most part. And so we decided, you know what, it would be fun for us to start collecting art. And the model that we chose was that we wanted to, as much as we could, collect only living artists because of this idea of patronage. Our act of actually buying their art could impact their life. We actually had that happen. I'll always remember it. We found a British artist whose work we really, really loved at one of the shows, I think it was in Florida, the Miami Basel. She wasn't in the Basel section. She was in one of the many numerous additional fairs that are going on. And she was being presented at one for emerging artists. And so we just loved her work. You'll see it when you're here. And as it was so incredibly affordable, she had, I think, 14 or 15 pieces. And we bought them all. They were very small. So you would present them as a collection. The next week, I get a phone call, and it was from the artist. And she said, I hope I'm not being rude, but I got your number from the gallery that sold you my work. And I just wanted to call you and say, I just started crying when he called me and said that you'd done that. She goes, because what that meant to me was, I think she worked in a bank. And she goes, I quit my job at the bank the next day and went full time on my art. And then the great reveal here is the next year we went, she was at Art Basel and she was the featured artist of the gallery. It's all connected because if she didn't have the ability to go full time, maybe she doesn't create all the art that makes her the featured artist the next year. So that's the real difference in people's lives. And I love that. Some art can be commercial art. So you make something for a, you're an artist working on a Pixar movie or something, you're going to get paid because that stuff makes a lot of money. But there's tons of great art that just will never make that kind of money unless there's all these appreciators of the arts that are ready to pay for it as the people are alive. If you're only an investor in art and you want to collect like something 200 years old, that's great. But finding people as they're doing it, that's the highest leverage way to help the arts, I feel like. I think so too. And we don't have a perfect batting average. I love particularly sculptures from China, the Tang Dynasty. We've got some great Buddha heads and a Tang horse and things like that. But by and large, I would say that about 80% of our collection was put together while the artist was still alive. Now, unfortunately, we've had a couple die on us because they were further on in their career. But It's been really great because not only has it helped us appreciate it more, we've gotten to know many of the artists as people. And Richard Leroy is a marvelous, he uses a camera obscura, which is a camera, in quotes, that is actually a huge room. And it prints the image right on the paper. So his photographs, there are no negatives. There is only one. 
So it has the feeling of both the uniqueness of an oil painting, but done with a camera obscura. And he's a brilliant, brilliant artist. And he's also incredibly funny. I mean, what a polymath. And so we got to know him. He lives in outside of London, but he was here for an opening and we had a big party for him. We became instantly friends. And so Joel Meyerowitz would be another example. Joel is considered the greatest living street photographer out there, even though he does work well beyond street. And he's getting a great retrospective all over Europe, and it's going to start up in the US as well. Long story short, I met him because he read my book, How to Retire Rich, and called me and said, will you manage my money? And I'm like, okay, (laughs) first off, big fan of your work. But then my wife met him and ended up taking many, many workshops from him. And we became dear, dear friends with he and his wife, Maggie. And in fact, went to Berlin to help him celebrate his 80th birthday. It's one of the things that I love. I mean, if you're looking for an algorithm of how I try to do things, I love being able to meet interesting and fascinating people and actually have a connection in real life with them. It's kind of the way I use social media. I'm always scanning for what I think is an interesting person. I found you years ago. And then I follow them. I read their work if it's written. I listen to their music if it's music. I look at their art if it's art, etc. And then when I'm sufficiently convinced that this is not a fluke, this man or woman really is talent, I'll reach out and say, hi, I really enjoy your work. Are you willing to do a Zoom with me? And then it's kind of how you and I started to connect. And then I try to, whenever possible, move it to real life. I'll have that opportunity with you in October, please, sooner. Looking forward to it. But it's the way to use that incredibly massive top of funnel of social media to get down to really fascinating, interesting people who that you think, boy, I'd really like to know them better. I'd really like to be their friend. I'd really like to maybe collaborate with them or work with them. And so we found that pre-internet with the artists that we collect, the musicians, I particularly love Baroque music. And so when I was still living in St. Paul, I served on the board of the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, got to meet Pinky Zuckerman. He was our music director, Chris Hogwood, wonderful man, unfortunately died. But then when I moved to New York, I also became chair of the Chamber of Music Society of Lincoln Center, because again, my passion for music is probably one of my bigger ones. I don't do it now, but I'll show you. My family really like the fact that I have these AirPod Maxes on all the time. I think they secretly do, because they they all try to like, Dad, don't give us a 15-minute soliloquy about X. But I just listen to music almost all day. And when I'm not working, or even if I'm working and not conversing or having to do something with others, like Bach classical broadly during the day, then a whole group of other styles of music, love classic rock, love EDM, as you mentioned. I used to go literally to Tower Records for our, our younger listeners won't know probably what Tower <laughs> Records it's is. Gone now. Used to be where you went if you wanted to find the coolest new music. And one of the things that I did was I would go in and go to the various sections and randomly pick CDs. I had no agenda. 
I would just go bump, 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 go buy them all and listen and say, wow, I really like this or, ooh, I really hate this. But one of the ones that I grabbed in the late 80s was something called European New Beat, which ultimately emerged to be first techno, then EDM. And I've loved it ever since. Most of it is incredible, but also one of the first buyers of NWA. (laughs) (laughs) That's diversity, right? But that's the beauty of the threads I'm seeing there are curiosity. When you're exploring too many people, they figure out what they like between like, I don't know, 12 and 22. And then the rest of their lives, they just cycle through that again and again and again. Not everybody has to be constantly trying new things, but you have to keep a certain percentage of your time just exploring new things because I love saying this, right? This phrase, your favorite thing is out there, but you haven't found it yet. And so as long as you keep trying new things, maybe you'll eat most of them. But if you find one great new thing, that really enriches your life. And another trend I'm seeing between some of your loves and passions is, as you see, like music, it's mad, but it's also mad that pulls directly at your emotions. And I'm seeing that trend, like you also love fiction and movies and all that stuff. You can look at the more quantified side where you can understand how it's made, how were they thinking about it as a project, what were they trying to accomplish and the skills and the techniques and all that stuff is very interesting to me. And I think to you too, but the other side, how it makes you feel, that part is very fuzzy and qualitative and you just, you know it when you see it. And I feel like one reinforces the other. I haven't had a chance to meet that many artists firsthand, but with the internet now, when I read a great book, I'm going to find a podcast with the author and get to know them a little bit better. And if they're really interesting, I feel it makes their work more interesting. It makes me want to follow them more. And once in a while, you meet the artist or you get to know them and you wish you hadn't. Once in a while, you get burned that way or it makes you feel like the association with the art makes the art worse in some way. And that's too bad. But a lot of the time, I feel it gives depth to those things. And so if I had a great painting and I knew the person how they were thinking, I don't know, it just gives you an extra dimension. And I love that in today's connected world, we can learn about these people. Hundreds of years ago, you'd see something and you could never know more. You couldn't even find out what else that person did most of the time. So we're very lucky as lovers of the arts right now. No question. The one pitfall that presents is you have to be really aggressive about never confusing the message with the messenger. And it has, I think, led to very, very many takes that are not helpful. So Caleb is a great example. You know this about me. I love his work. I put it up. I've read everything he's written, but I find his behavior, particularly on Twitter, to be juvenile and a very fragile ego. And I realized as I was reading one of his many tweets calling a person an imbecile or a moron or whatever he does, that it was beginning to affect my respect for his work. And so the only solution I could find was to block him on Twitter. (laughs) Even if you try not to, it's hard not to be influenced by that. And at a different level, we could imagine that if people confuse the two, right, the artist and the art, the whole let's cancel everybody thing, how would that work with the past, right? How many great artists of the past would never have gotten published or in expositions or collections or whatever because they had some crazy belief about X or... They were rude or whatever, right? They didn't fit in somehow. Those misfits 
created some of the best stuff in the past. And so why would we think that today would be different? You need a very spiky and extreme personality to create something totally new, totally different that nobody else has thought of. I feel we have to be very careful about that. And I don't know, just be more tolerant and kinder to difference. I think that that's the key. You mentioned quant. That was how I spent the majority of my career was as a quantitative manager in asset management equities. But I believe that You've got to be both Athens and Sparta. You've got to be Lao Tzu and Confucius. It's walking a razor's edge, but you're not going to get nearly as far as you could get if you over-optimize to a particular side. If you over-optimize to everything being emotional, that's not going to be great for you. It contributes absolutely, but to be all emotion or all reason. I find to be suboptimal. And one of the things that I believe very, very strongly in is this idea that live your life as a verb, not as a noun. We are all about becoming. And as you said earlier in our conversation, it's the journey. And if you can understand that, it leads you to being much more forgiving about idiosyncrasies, et cetera, because What's one of the lowest forms of argument? Argument ad hominem, argument against the man. And generally speaking, you find people who make those arguments are not terribly bright, and yet they work. And that's why you see the legacy media doing what it's doing, and it's quick and easy and usually wrong. Not always. That's the other thing. We are deterministic thinkers living in a probabilistic world and generally hilarity or tragedy ensue. <laughs> and so this idea of all or none, zero, 100, yeah, it's great for computer code, bits and bytes, ones and zeros. Wow, they can do amazing things, but not so great for we humans. And one of the things that I've always endeavored to do was to always tried as best as I can. And I fail often, but as best I can balance those two. And I think once you recognize the journey in yourself and the ever-changing nature of your personality, you have to see that in others too, right? And once you know that they're like that too, and there are different parts of their journey, it becomes a lot harder to judge them as a monolith that's non-changing. Oh, that person said that thing, so they will always believe that thing, and they always believed it, and they can't ever change. That's not how people work. And if others were treating us like that, I don't think we'd like it very much. No, we'd hate it. That's label thinking, but I got to think of a better word because it's not thinking. It's shutting your brain off. And it is us versus them. It's tribalism, which essentially social media has added fuel to the fire there. Now, there's some good parts of that, which I think we'll get into later when we're talking about OSV's strategy, particularly in infinite media. But back to kind of our evolutionary heritage. When you're living in a hunter-gatherer tribe, there's two things you want to do. The first thing is required, and that is you got to fit in. Because if you don't fit in, you risk exile and death. But the minute after you fit in, you want to stand out. (laughs) (laughs) The paradox. And so these two are always really kind of in uncomfortable balance for many, many people. And I just think that stupidity, label thinking has caused more deaths, more 
lost chances at innovation and work, more stasis than almost any other thing in our human history. And so one of the great things that happened to me, I guess, maybe in my late 30s, early 40s, was I became aware that I was at best a co-creator. And that simple observation was so lucky for me to have because it does a bunch of things all at once. It, number ones, reduces your ego a lot. When you realize that it's mine, 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 I did that. He's ripping me off. Blah, blah, blah. My idea, yeah. My idea. And what happens is you just close yourself down to so many great ideas out there in the ether, to use an ancient term. The morphogenetic field, if we were going to use the updated Sheldrake version of it. But when I realized that, it so opened my aperture about everything is kind of not necessarily a full remix, but kind of. And there are so many great ideas in the world. Some people would argue that the universe itself is intelligent. And if you look at the life of Nikola Tesla, he thought so. He thought that thinking and ideas and stuff weren't really generated in our physical brains at all. He thought of our brains as kind of like radios with both the ability to receive, but also the ability to broadcast. You read however many decades later about pioneer frontier scientists looking into, wait a minute, maybe we are quantum creatures and maybe there is a field where a lot of our ideas reside. And so when you figure out that you're at best a co-creator, it opens you to all of those other great ideas and creators out there. And when you're not gimme, 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 and you're not like, it's my idea, not yours, it just engenders so much more great ideas, so much more pushing stuff out into the universe. And it's just Fantastic. And if you don't need all of the credit to yourself, and it doesn't need to be only original stuff, it opens so much for collaboration and for remix and for standing on the shoulders of giants and the mindset of being open to what others are doing, because that can be part of it. If it all has come from you, then you're probably not even looking at what others are doing, at least not in the right way. A bit earlier, you mentioned doing quantitative investing. I'm very curious about that too. Like, how did you get into finance, into investing? What was the interest, this kind of spark that started that? How was a young Jim, like at the bottom of the ladder starting out? What was that like for you? Again, it comes back to family. My grandfather, as I mentioned, during his own life, gave away 95% of his money. He had a balance left over when he died. And that was in the O'Shaughnessy Foundation that my uncles and aunts and dad were the trustees of. And they would have quarterly meetings in St. Paul. And then my mom would throw a big dinner party for all of my uncles and aunts and Irish family. So if there were 12 of us around the table, there were at least 14 opinions that all disagreed with one another. But when I finally got the nod to come up to the adult table, which I adored. <laughs> That's a good moment. Yeah, there was this moment where my uncle John and my dad were arguing about the relative merits of IBM. Now, you got to remember, this is 1976, so there are computers, but they don't work so well. 
huge mainframes mostly and like exactly. punch cards and tape reels and but as i listened to my dad and my uncle i just thought man you guys are totally wrong what they were doing was they were talking specifically about the ceo and much of their conversation was can't remember who was on what side but it was like no he's no good and he's not going to be able to drive that company forward and all these things and i remember asking my uncle who was more oriented towards business than my dad who started life as a literature professor i said to my uncle uncle john wouldn't it make more sense to like look at the numbers <laughs> that ibm was doing and he dismissed me and he goes well when you're older we'll teach you about how you can make good investment decisions and so i wasn't having that this idea got stuck in my mind i wonder if there's something you can figure out about investing i'm a huge systems thinker i think if you understand the underlying system you're going to make better bets as it were than if you don't and i thought that my dad and uncle didn't understand the underlying system at all they were looking at the surface that ceo and i didn't think that that was at all right so i went down to the james j hill research library in minnesota paid for by that great malefactor of wealth james j hill one of the robber barons of the railroad era anyway it was a cornucopia of info i mean it was in heaven so i went and i asked them and i said i'm really interested in the stock market and i want to learn about it and the librarian was like okay gave me graham of course ben graham but then gave me a book on the s&p tear sheet i don't know if, you're probably too young to have used those yeah was it like the moody's manuals or moody's manuals were also involved but being the by nature incredibly lazy human that i am i decided i was really not going to be able to do 500 stocks i mean are you kidding me <laughs> so i decided to do the 30 stocks in the dow the interesting thing about that was the dow is the oldest continuous index the s&p 500 when you see it back to the 20s that's not the s&p 500 that's a proxy for the s&p 500 i think pre 1958 so it was constructed then not at the beginning the cool thing about the dow is it became a 30 stock index in 1927 or 1928 and then it was continuously updated in real time and that's really important because it bakes in all the mistakes people make as a real simple example in i think 1939 they had ibm in the dow but they kicked it out in 1939 and put in AT&T that one change made the dow worth 10 times less than it would have been had they simply allowed IBM to stay in that's the funny thing with the indexes they're basically active because someone is speaking what's going in it and their ships of theseus their their axes of abraham lincoln every piece has been changed over time so it has the same name over 100 years but every constituent has almost changed you're looking at the graph and saying seeing one thing but underneath the surface it's morphing all the time so anyway continue yeah very different but so that in itself was an educational exercise for me because i found this book i still have a copy around here somewhere and it was all the changes in the dow since the beginning and so i meticulously built out several years with the then 30 components of the dow and by the way 
really paleolithic stuff. I was doing it on a paper spreadsheet that was one of the big ones. And so I had one for each year and I would list the 30 Dow stocks. And then across the vertical axis, I would put all the popular ratios, dividend, PE, price to cash flow, price to book, all those things. And then literally by hand, went through and found, is there some kind of thing that is obvious here? Well, guess what? There was. (laughs) And the obvious thing was that the more you were willing to pay for a stock, the lower your return in general. Now, that doesn't always hold. It's why we have market cycles and why growth and value are forever fighting with each other. And, you know, value is coming off of a, I don't know, 17-year performance, primarily, I think, because the Fed monkeyed around with zero interest rates for too long. But the point being, I was like, wow, there are formulas that you can apply and like get much better results. And now I wasn't a total nerd. I was much more interested in girls and girlfriends at the time. So I kind of abandoned that. (laughs) I came back to it in my early 20s, which really resulted in my first book, Invest Like the Best. So I was always very data-driven. The other thing about quants is quants are basically meta-magicians, as it were. When you're a quant, you are really a freeloader. (laughs) What you're doing is you are aggregating and synthesizing and distilling, compressing all of those thousands, hundreds of thousands of hours of human hours of the analysts, of the researchers, of everything, because it gets distilled in the numbers. It's one of the reasons why efficient market theory is what it is. And as a quant, I'm like, we could build a meta model of this that, again, also as a lazy human, (laughs) it was like, wait a minute, I can just use a meta model, freeload off all of these people burning the midnight oil doing their research, because basically markets are the net best guess estimate of the collection of investors as to the prospects of an asset. That's what they are. Collective intelligence. It is hive intelligence. Exactly. And one of the things that you can do if you're a quant is you can basically take maximum advantage of that by building out algorithmic models based on historical testing of those models. The thing that people forget, though, is it's really an arbitrage on human nature. I make mistakes all the time, and I wrote a piece, Mistakes Were Made, and Yes by Me, because I think if you don't make mistakes, you're not trying hard enough. And it's the only way to learn also. When I came out with my first version of What Works on Wall Street, this is the marketer in me, I foolishly said, Price to sales is the king of the value ratios. (laughs) What an idiot. The footnote would read, for the specific time period that Jim used to generate the data in this book, it will probably most likely change going forward, blah, blah, blah. I got sent a couple of academic papers saying, Boris is a great book, but God, O'Shaughnessy, what an idiot. He didn't think about putting ratios together, which gave us the great idea to do composites, which OSAM, which I'm no longer involved with since we sold it to Franklin Templeton, but still uses the composite approach to security selection, where we use multiple ratios in a composite to make our determinations. But the point about it being arbitrage against human nature, what I noticed was 
after my first book was written, Invest Like the Best, essentially that book taught you how to clone your favorite portfolio manager by taking the stocks in his or her portfolio, putting them onto a large database like the CompuStat or value line I was using at the time, and then taking an x-ray. How do they differ from the market as a whole? And that x-ray became your screening criteria. And one of the things that I realized after that had many years of age in it, when we would go back and update the clone portfolios, we found that they were always beating the manager they cloned. And I'm like, huh. Interesting. What is going on here? Well, what's going on? You know, the old Pogo cartoon, we've met the enemy and it's us. So we basically allow our emotions of the moment to lead us down really bad decision trees. Fear, greed, hope, and ignorance are the four horsemen of the investment apocalypse. And only ignorance is not an emotion. When you mention arbitraging against human nature, do you feel like what quant investing does is not like you're not necessarily, sometimes maybe, but you're not necessarily seeing things that others are not seeing. But it's more like Ulysses tying himself to the mast so that when everybody is too excited about something or too depressed about something, you're just like sailing through. You're not going to make the same mistake as others. And this helps you prevent all of those human nature troubles. Markets change zeptosecond by zeptosecond, and human nature has barely budged millennia by millennia. And essentially what you are betting on is that human nature isn't going to change too much. And you can look at it historically. Every time that you get something that's really exciting and ignites the human imagination, gets priced to the moon, RCA, when radio came out, achieved <laughs> a price that it never got back to in the 1920s because people were so enamored of this new tech. And so they tend to be the fear-greed cycle. They're the father and mother of FOMO and that style of investing. And we, uh, collectively, it's why I love Harry Seldon so much, psychohistory, <laughs> we collectively are pretty predictable in what we're going to do. Not as individuals, very clearly not as individuals, but collectively, humanity tends to make the same mistake again and again and again. It seems impervious to education. I found a study that was done on, I think it was Swedish investors because they have all the info on how people invested their money. And so they looked, they used pairs of identical twins. So identical twins. Oh, that's good. Essentially clones of one another, 100% same DNA. And what they concluded was that about 45% of investment behavior was genetic and could not be educated against. Wow. That is really important. So what happens is there is a library worth of behavioral biases. We know the, most of them. It doesn't matter. It's like Danny Kenneman, who is kind of the godfather of this movement, along with Tversky, said cognitive biases are also cognitive mirages. And then he said, like a visual mirage, when you're in a desert dying of thirst and you see the water all, knowing in your mind that it's a mirage and that is not real, doesn't matter. You don't stop seeing it, right? You don't stop seeing it. And more importantly, you don't stop walking towards it. 
because our brains are prediction machines. And that's why things like paradoxes and mirages and cognitive illusions are so even magicians, the way magicians trick an audience, even if you know it's magic, he's going to trick me. It's not real. What I'm seeing, you still see it. And believe it. That's the critical part. If you believe it, you will fall down an endless abyss because back to why we need to be both Sparta and Athens. We need some discipline, Sparta, around our Athenian illusions or grand theories. Some They're both. If you can train yourself to understand, hey, I'm running human OS just like everybody else. What is the most effective way to take advantage of that? The most effective way to take advantage of it for me, and by the way, I'm the first to say this is not right for everyone, but for me was to develop a process that I never emotionally overrode. People used to always make the joke, oh, what do you play golf all day? You're not doing any research. You're not talking to the company president and all that. <laughs> My normal response was never heard that one before. <laughs> The funny thing is, is that that's what we spent all of our time on was research, but of the model, not of the individual securities. I would be just as happy if securities were just numbers, number chains. Instead of Harley Davidson, it could be 01347953. If you did that, humans might figure out, hey, I got really influenced by the fact that it is Harley-Davidson and I love motorcycles. And I think that that might be creating a bias in me because I love motorcycles so much that I really want Harley-Davidson to succeed. And you look, again, it's another way of understanding. If you want to see something, you really have to look beneath the surface of the appearance. You want to go down several levels and build out a system architecture that allows you to do that. Like with cognitive biases, even if you know that you shouldn't let something influence you, it's going to anyway. There's a great book called The Halo Effect, which talks about how when a company is doing really well, that halo around it, people will extend it to all kinds of stuff. So the CEO is a genius. All the decisions are good. Oh, it must be because their culture is like this. And they find every characteristic of the company and attribute the success to that. But then when the same company starts doing badly, All of the same characteristics could be spun around to say, oh, they're doing terrible because the CEO is a maverick. He's not following the whatever best practices for this and their culture is terrible because people can find whatever reasons to explain the end result. They don't need much. They just need the result and then they'll fill in all of the reasons why it should be that way. One question for you is about writing your books because you get all these ideas about investing and about how to do it in a quant way and a more systematic way. But many people would have taken that and built a company and like never said a word, just closed doors. Same with Buffett, right? You could have done the same things, but never talked about it. And so I'm curious, what made you want to write about it? What made you want to publicize the ideas? And how was that experience of writing? Because as a short form writer, I'm always curious about people who write long form, a long research project where it could take years to get some feedback from the audience. For a long time, you're just like with a bunch of unorganized notes, right? And you don't know how to get to the end product. So I'm curious about both that, like why the books and how was it to create them? Because they could easily have just stayed in your head. I've loved writing since I was a child. One of the first things, I actually have it here somewhere, was a book I wrote, I think at age 11, 
which was science fiction. And I think I got 112 handwritten pages in it. So I always like to write, but I also believe in level playing fields. So again, we said at the beginning of our chat that my purpose in life is to be useful. And I found that to be a useful exercise. I thought it would be helpful to, as best I could, level the playing field and give people tools to become better investors. It's so funny because it kind of bleeds into, are you a scarcity mindset person or are you an abundance mindset person? I'm an abundance mindset person. And I'm also very well aware that the career and having lived it, obviously N equals one here. So if you want to chart the course of a public asset manager, just look at a sine wave. You go from genius, idiot, genius, idiot, genius, idiot. And what's really interesting is that people do not understand this. I'll give you a great example. Again, with the Canadian funds, we managed in the dot-com crisis, a small cap growth fund and a large cap value fund. (laughs) (laughs) Those who know their history know that in the late 1990s, those were possibly the slowest rabbits that you could possibly look at. It's like you tried on purpose to pick what's not hot at the time. (laughs) Exactly. And so I got a call from a reporter at kind of the height of the dot-com craze from the Globe and Mail. He's very antagonistic. He's like, so I really only have one question here. And that is, I did a scan of Morningstar CA and you and only one other Canadian funds, there's only two of you who don't own Nortel. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, is this just because you're a dumb American that you don't (laughs) understand that Nortel is the absolute diamond in the crown of Canadian tech, telecom, everything? And I'm like, I know what Nortel is, but we're quants. And the reason that we don't own it is it violates all of our parameters. It's incredibly overpriced. And he became really angry. It's personal. (laughs) Yeah, it was personal for him. And so anyway, I walked him through the algorithms that selected the stocks for the fund in question, all Canadian, and he was not terribly satisfied. (laughs) (laughs) He probably owned a bunch of Nordell. Of course he did. (laughs) There's another trap. We could do an entire podcast just on the mental traps people fall into. We always err and make a mistake where we interpret things as being in reality as we want them to be, not as they are. Small anecdote about this, but I've noticed it in myself and I try to remind myself of that time and time again, because I think it's useful. I used to own company X in my portfolio and then I sell the news away and then I sell it for whatever reason and I start seeing things differently after that. At first you don't kind of see it, but then you look back and you're like, wow, I really changed my mind on this company. What happened? And it's like, oh, I sold the stock. (laughs) I'm trying to rub my nose in that because it's too easy to forget otherwise. Totally. The conclusion of that story is at the end of our conversation, I said to him, we might end up buying Nortel. And then I gave him the zinger. I said, but it'll probably be 90% lower in price when we do. And we did. (laughs) I remember it going pretty quickly. After the dot-com implosion, we ended up buying Nortel. And here's the great part of this story. The same reporter called me from the Globe and Mail and said, 
You're a genius. You <laughs> bought Nortel when everyone else was selling it. What's your secret? And I'm like, don't you remember? I told you. <laughs> we are constrained much more than we think by our illusions of what things should be like. And the ability to step outside and come up with a process where you try to inoculate yourself as much as you can against known <laughs> problems, the better. From my particular point of view, that does not mean that there are not pure artists out there who are incredibly successful investors. So I'm not arguing for a one-size-fits-all. I think that you have to determine, my most given advice for almost everybody is index your money. Put your money into index funds because it's really hard to be an active stock selector. I've written about it and talked about it endlessly. And so for the average person, Go live your life. Do what really you're enamored of and everything. And if you just simply dollar cost average into a 401k or IRA or any other kind of tax advantage thing that you get through your employer or maintain yourself, you're going to be 90% of all of the other hunters out there. And so if, however, you are like me and just voraciously curious See, I always looked at Wall Street as the Olympics of business. And so that's why I was drawn there. It was just like, it's always something new. It's always something interesting and different. And you have to be interested in a bunch of different things. But if that's not you, there's nothing wrong with that. Just index your money and just do it on a schedule, on a process. I believe in process that you interrupt at your own peril. But if you are interested and are fascinated, then read everything you can get your hands on. Listen to every podcast, watch, do all of that, but then design something that's right for you. That's key because it's no good if you read what we're saying. And this happens so many times. I would get calls from people and they're like, I am making so much money just following your criteria. Thank you for putting this out in the world. And then like a few months later, I get a call from the exact same person saying, you are a bump. <laughs> your stuff doesn't work anymore. And I left it and I've lost a lot of money. And how dare you? <laughs> so many geniuses in bull markets. It's confusing <laughs> the factors. And what you say rings so true. Anyone asking me, I'll tell them the same thing. Index your money unless there are all these other factors that make it a lot of added value for you. So I'm a stock picker and I respect the quant approach. I respect the indexing. I think there's many, many ways of doing it. The only reason why I do it the way I do is because I like being a kind of detective, a kind of journalist for these companies and having skin in the game helps me care about it, right? If I was indexing, I know I wouldn't read the transcripts and follow all of the things. And so to me, it's a kind of lifestyle design. By doing it that way, I get to do stuff I really like and say I was not beating the market it would be fine because I'm getting other value from it. If I was finding it terribly boring to do all of this, there would be no point, right? Just index and go do something more fun. Life is short, right? Do something cool exactly. that you like. My next question, because I could talk to you all day <laughs> and I want to get to OSV. I'm curious. So the books and OSAMS, all that's going really well. But I'm curious, when did the idea for OSV begin in your mind? Were you thinking about it for a long time? Did it come up 
recently. What was the vision behind it and the guiding stars for it? It was a long time coming, actually. I, in about, I don't know, 2012, 2013, had this feeling that we quants had pushed the frontier as far as we were going to be able to push it. There's a dirty little secret among quants. If you compare our models, they all look a lot alike because we all use the same data set, the CompuStat. It's the gold standard in verifiable data or, well, mostly verifiable. <laughs> if you talk to my team, they would say, oh, thanks, Jim, because <laughs> you made us spend nine years cleaning that data. I, at the same time, became a bit enamored of the nascent, at that time, field of machine learning and AI. And I kind of thought, well, we could build out another data set using the Moody's manuals. And we actually embarked on that project. We acquired Moody's manuals going back to 1900. And we were having them put into machine readable format when the opportunity to join the Franklin Templeton family presented itself. So I knew that that chapter was going to be ending. And so we quit that. But I had looked into at length what maybe the next frontier in quantitative research could be. And all roads led to machine learning and AI. And in fact, I was going to start a subsidiary with a name called Gray Swan, riffing off of Caleb's Black Swan, with my thesis being a black swan is an economic event, which by its very definition cannot be predicted, but that doesn't mean it can't be confirmed. In other words, I always use the example of when oil went negative as a perfect example. Had I been able to, through machine learning and artificial intelligence, be able to build a system that had a high percentage of accuracy on confirming a black swan. Well, you don't have to be Albert Einstein to understand how valuable that would be. If you were able to confirm that a black swan had happened in oil markets, to stay with that example, even 24 hours. Yeah, faster than others. Yeah. The trading opportunity there would be enormous. Now, I later learned about how much it would cost me to try to buy that amount of compute which led me to an introduction to the company I'm now the chairman of, Stability AI. But I was also musing, for example, I owe a lot of my career to legacy media, specifically CNBC, Barron's, and the Wall Street Journal. And I'm forever grateful for that. CNBC Squawk Box, Mark Haynes ruled with an iron fist there during its early days. And Squawk used to be a three-hour-long program that always had a co-host from the practitioner side of the market. And Mark and I got along really well, so he ended up picking me as his co-host virtually every other week. They had rules about how often you could be on. So while I still credit them with a huge part of my success because they opened my distribution channels widely, around 2016, 17, there was this thing gnawing at me about how, first off, how much Squawk had changed. It used to be a three-hour program where literally you would have a portfolio manager on it and you would give them 20 minutes of a conversation with you and the talent at CNBC to really explain and have their methodology challenged. It was truly a learning environment. 
to basically ESPN, but for business. And I went from having the opportunity to be a co-host for three hours to two and a half minute hits. And I just thought, this is not valuable anymore. And I had started experimenting with social media, specifically Twitter, early, like I think 2009. And for the first five years of that, I was just like, I don't get it. If you understand Twitter back in those days, it was people like literally taking pictures of what they had for lunch. And people, saying, I didn't figure out the format yet. Yeah, I really like this BLT. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't think that's going to be great. As I would check back in on social media, and again, specifically on Twitter, I became quite enamored of what it had evolved into and what I think is still evolving into. Now, there are challengers that might take it over, like Blue Sky or something like that. But I started to see social media as the new kid that was going to become king. Because as you know, I believe for the first time in history, we have the greatest variance amplifier as a tool, the internet, that is being supercharged by machine learning and AI. And it's giving us the opportunity to really finally build the human colossus. And I always looked at Twitter as the primary candidate for emerging as the world's first truly global intelligence network, where you could aggregate all of the opinions, the variety of views, the variety of interests, et cetera, in a way that simply could not have been done in the past. So I essentially shifted everything to social media. I stopped going on legacy media. I would do occasional hits with Bloomberg Radio, primarily because I like the host a lot. But also I was given 45 minutes where we would actually have a conversation. And so I kind of go all in when I get enamored on something. And so I started really thinking about what are the implications of where this will go? And the implications, as you well know, became the various verticals that we have at OSV. I think that people who think that the world doesn't need another podcast or Substack are deluding themselves. I think we are going to see a golden age of a variety of niche interests, domains, et cetera. Power laws exist. There's very little we can do against them. But used to be a power law was just for everybody. Now we've got all these little niches that the internet makes possible. We have the tools that makes creative people using that platform effectively in place. And so I believe we're going to see an absolute explosion of interest in various niches. There'll be YouTube channels, there'll be podcasts, there'll be Substack. There'll be all of these things and thus infinite media, which you are the head of, but also movies. I'm a huge movie buff and I got dismayed when Hollywood just kept making the same superhero movie time and time again. And don't get me wrong. I like superhero movies. I like the original stuff, like the original Marvel Universe, really interesting, all of that. But my God, okay, can you still make a movie that's inspiring to humans? So they weren't. And so I decided, well, we will. And so we have infinite films. And then Adventures, which is venture capital, is something that we had diversified into in about 2006 and fascinated me for different reasons in public markets. And then finally, the fellowship piece was kind of me 
testing a thesis. And the thesis was, listen, my guess is talent and genius are normally distributed. And it just was the bad fortune of people who lived in places that weren't in the network to go unidentified. And so our thesis around the fellowships was we can identify them and we can fund them. We're still in our first year of that. And I think it's going well, but we'll learn a lot and iterate and make it better. I think it's a very exciting model. I think it's very unique. The supply and the demand were always there for all these niche interests, but something was blocking it in the middle. And that's the old gatekeepers. They own the distribution. And you can't blame them 100% because in the world of atoms, there's just not enough for everything, right? It just wasn't possible, but still. But now that they're kind of like getting out of the way and everybody on the supply side can just get the tools, get the information and put their ideas out there, their creativity out there. And on the demand side, people can use all these interest graphs like Twitter, all of the diverse platforms to find these niche creators. Now this kind of marketplace of ideas is exploding in ways that never existed before in the history of humanity. And we have no idea where it can go, how big it can get, and what will come of it. Because in the same way that books are made of books, ideas are made of ideas. So when you start putting a lot more ideas, a lot more diversity of ideas out there, this is going to generate a bunch of new stuff. It's very, very exciting. And I haven't told you this explicitly, but I think you know, I wasn't looking for a job. And if you say like, oh yeah, OSV was a nice experiment, but I'm shutting it down, right? I'm going to play golf from now on. I'm not going to be like looking for another job in media somewhere else. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is unique. This is a one of a kind type of thing to me anyway. That's what I find very, very exciting about it. And as you say, on the media side, because I think all of the verticals are very synergistic, they work together very well, and they're all very exciting. And I think it's interesting that for someone known as a quant, you've been doing basically qualitative investing since 2006, right, in private companies and probably before that in different vehicles. So I think you've for a long time been looking at the whole system. And so all of these pieces can work together very well to help creators just be discovered or just already successful creators just kick ass more, right? Get to the next level or for audiences to find them through like just trying to do good curation for people who like the same kind of stuff that we like. There's so much opportunity there to do great things, to be useful. I'm very, very excited about it. And that's why I'm here. <laughs> I know. And for your listeners, I heavily recruited you. You did not come to me looking for a job because I think you're one of the best curators out there. And I think that curation is going to emerge over the next 10 years as a really viable occupation. It's always a challenge because you get into what's curation. Well, frankly, it's having good taste. And then, you know, that start point about throwing gas on a fire because everyone is, no, it's not. It's not you know. <laughs> so but pretentious, I, right? <laughs> you know, how elitist of you to say that you have to have good taste. Well, there's going to be a tsunami, like the debate about AI right now. I think that most 80% of like any text or whatever generated by AI is going to be dull and lifeless and flat. I think that AI combined with humans is going to come up with some of the coolest new ideas ever because AI gives us, it's a tool that we can use to look into liminal spaces where our minds aren't equipped to look. We can't look at an array filled with billions of data items and find out what they have in common, what separates them. 
that's child's play for an AI. But the idea is if you as the human use that as a tool to say, huh, you know, I really like all of this body of work. I wonder what it has in common. And then the AI will go, well, it has all of this in common. But then that's the starting point. Then you iterate and you say, "Ah, I don't really think that's right. In other words, I love the author Jed McKinna, who is kind of the most badass spiritual type guy because he's categorized as spiritual seeker. He ain't that. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things that he really inspired by me reading his work was this idea that back to co-creativity, what we are is spiritually, we are a unique and flawed bit of spiritual DNA. And what happens is we direct the light of the universal perfect intelligence, Brahman, he would call it, through our prism here. And what comes out of the other end is something created, something interesting. Needs that us, that flawed DNA, to make it interesting, to make it, oh, wow, I never thought about it. I'm in awe of people who create worlds. Tolkien fan from when I was a kid, Game of Thrones, C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. I love people who create worlds. And would it be cool if we use that tool to put all of the worlds that others had created onto an AI and say, create a new one? And we look at it and we like, yeah, I don't like this. I don't like this. Let's take that out. Let's edit. Let's iterate. Put it back in. Give me another one. No, don't like that. Okay, so bum, 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 bum. And as a tool, I think it's going to be unlock creativity. You yourself are a great example of this. You do beautiful art renderings. Thank you. Using the various stable diffusion models. And isn't that cool? Because I can't draw a stick. It's amazing. (laughs) I'm pretty much stuck at stick figures myself. And the way I look at it is... You can play every instrument in the orchestra, or you can be the conductor of the orchestra. And you're still the editor, and you're still doing creative work. And it doesn't make what you do like, oh, it was made by a machine. It's worth that. No. Evidence that humans are very important is in the loop. An easy way to see it is take two people and give them the exact same tools. Give them like stable diffusion and a language model. And one of them could come up with amazing things, and the other it could be pure crap. The person is a big factor in there. And if we zoom out, a human alone in the woods will maybe create some kind of stuff. They're going to drum on a tree trunk or something, and they'll come up with something. Give them one book they don't want to read. And oh, that gives them more fuel. Give them access to a whole library. And now maybe they're going to get going for years and come out with something great. Give them Photoshop. Give them Pro Tools. As you add tools, you just add colors to the palette of what they could do. It's like a conductor with a bigger orchestra, more textures that they can play with. And I think these AI tools are different. I wouldn't say they're the same as Photoshop. They have brand new things that we need to learn to understand. And we don't even know the capabilities of the models that we have right now. We're still discovering the edges because it's too easy to make analogies to what we have and get stuck in loops where we use them the same ways. And But there's lots we haven't tried. So... That granted that they're different, I think they're also part of that chain of tools to help create. And maybe at some point, the models will provide more of the creative value. But for the very best human creators, that'll just help them get to even bigger and better things. Creation is not what 
people would expect by watching a movie about a great artist. It's not a montage and it just happens. There's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of reading and thinking and trying and first draft, second draft, like correcting grammar or repainting something because you made a mistake. Like all that stuff, if you can dump that into a machine that does it for you, you get more time on the really creative stuff, the really high value stuff, the really differentiated stuff. So I think it'll empower artists to do bigger and better things. I think so too. We didn't leave the stone age because we ran out of stones. Everything you see in the world, for the most part, came out of the mind of a man or a woman. People, I think, miss that often. All of the terrors of people who catastrophize everything. Oh, AGI is going to turn us all into paper clips and whatnot. I don't mean to say that we shouldn't think about that. We should. We should think about all of the potential, both opportunities and efficiencies. Fire was a great discovery, man, because it created the prefrontal cortex because we were able to cook our food finally. And that allowed the prefrontal cortex of the brain to develop, which made us the homo sapiens sapien, wise, wise man that we are classified of today. But fire can also be incredibly destructive. That's why we invented fire departments, firemen, fire exits, fire warnings, fire everything. And I'm a huge fan, as you know, of David Deutsch and his book, The Beginning of Infinity. I just think he so nailed it. We are, as far as we know, at least right till now, we are the only universal explainer and connector and builder in our little part of the universe. As we add tools that extend our reach, we're going to invent and innovate better and better things. And will that cause problems? Absolutely. I guarantee it. And so people sometimes say, oh, well, you're Panglossian in your optimism about AI. No, not at all. I think that there's going to be a lot of problems and that we have to have an open and honest dialogue where everyone can contribute to that dialogue. It should be moderated so that the people who come in and just say, everyone's going to die, can be weeded out. And the other ones, it's going to make us gods. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to have a discussion with the very extremes. What's interesting is they set the tone. There's a reason why, and I have a little theory, why are all of the current elites, especially the intellectual elites of today, why do they seem to be the ones arguing most aggressively using fear, uncertainty, and doubt about the future of AI? They don't want to be displaced. They're worried about their place in the hierarchy. We are social creatures to the end. We care about prestige and status. I didn't think I did. And then Will Storr and Rob <laughs> Henderson and a bunch of other people finally convinced me, shit. Everybody do does. Everybody does. And so, of course, look at who is arguing the most aggressively against with what I think are inflammatory. I mean, it's like the old Unabomber. I don't like that. So therefore, I'm going to bomb it. I'm going to do everything I can to firebomb, to kill the professors who are studying it. That's insane that we let those kind of people set the agenda is very troubling. It does not mean that I am saying that we shouldn't discuss exogenous variables, existential risks. We should. That's the thing that's so hard for people to understand because everybody wants certainty. And so they jump to one answer or the other. But a true and an honest, I don't know. 
a real I don't know means that maybe one extreme is right. Maybe the other extreme is right. Maybe it's somewhere in the middle. I don't know. I'm going to look at it all. I'm going to be rational about it. I'm going to weigh probabilities. I'm going to look at the evidence as it comes in. And we're going to work on tools to make it better. But a true I don't know means you don't like close to anything, but you also don't jump to some certainty because I don't see how you can have certainty right now. There's not the data for it. We don't know what's going to happen. Premature certainty is one of the worst things that you can fall into. It is a massive mistake to become certain of something because essentially you do it way too soon for the most part, and you're almost always wrong initially. If you look at movies, for example, what did they make the first movies of? Plays. <laughs> yeah, the past thing, right? Because that's what they knew. And so I think that only the madman is certain entirely certain and man boy is that a bug in human os this desire for certainty certainty doesn't exist and someone who sounds certain sounds more convincing Always. that's part of the bug so that's what must be fought like like what we just said about how like you're saying it's not because i say this that i know the answer but people listening to you automatically they're going to be like oh jim is super positive about it. no no he's saying he doesn't know but trying to stay in that middle is very very hard You've been so generous with your time. Thank you very much. I want to do one last thing before you go. I want to turn the table. I'm going to ask you if you were made emperor of the world for one day <laughs> and you could incept two ideas in the 8 billion people on the planet, what would these things be? So let's make them very simple. If you want a good life, be insatiably curious. Follow that curiosity. And then the other is understand that being grateful for what you have in your life is a superpower. That's good. And that the more grateful you are and the more you tell people who you're grateful to have in your life, the more magical your life becomes. Follow your curiosity, be insatiably curious, be grateful and since it's your podcast and not mine, I'm going to sneak a third one in. That is, be kind and don't confuse kindness with being nice. I do endeavor to be kind because one of the things that I've learned as I've gone through life is the fragility of humans is something, all of us, by the way, no exceptions. When you think about it, kindness helps. That's beautiful. And adding a third one is very on brand as the anti-authoritarian. So I approve also. <laughs> Thank you so much, my friend. This was great. I hope that now the listener feels like they know you a little bit better. They know more about what OSV is, that they're going to want to go subscribe to Jim's podcast. It's excellent. It's infinite loops. It's everything, right? It's arts and science and business and all kinds of great stuff. Go subscribe to the infinite loop Substacks, And I think that'll keep you up to date to what we're up to. Terrific. Thank you, Michael. And thanks for joining OSV. You're going to make it a better place. I'm going to do my best. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Cheers. <laughs>